Welcome to No Challenges Manning, live from Brooklyn, New York. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined by my friend Andrew Eccles of the... What's it called, Ben? It's called The Spin. That's got, correct. Got it right that time. Thank you. Thank you for being on here. It's a big day of uh, of tennis and, and things in the world, in our world anyway. It's a huge day. We're recording this just after, or in the morning after after midnight now, after the Oscars went off. We'll have more thoughts about that at the end of the show, but let's talk about the tennis we started our day with. Let's do it. At around 8 a.m. Brooklyn Standard Time, or Brooklyn Daylight Savings Time. Uh, it started off with Stuttgart and Ashley Barty, the WTA number one, winning the title in Stuttgart. Did I screw something up? You're looking at me like I screwed something up. No, again. you didn't screw anything up. That's okay. entirely correct. Okay, good, good. Yes. The spin is his, is his uh, sub-stack. You should all subscribe. It's great. Ash Barty, world number one, wins another title coming. She played Charleston in between, but she also won Miami. Uh, she's having a good run here. And Corey and I talked on the show about how Miami, we felt like, was almost more impressive and emphatic than her French Open title in 2019, mm-hmm. about who she beat. Um, I wouldn't quite go as far for this tournament because, but it's another big step and really solidifying her grip on number one in a way, honestly, that not WT number ones haven't done that much. Right. In terms of being consistently winning, like often, I think it's exciting and different. I think what people need to understand is that Ash Barty is dope and that they need to like... He means like the 90s slang for cool, not any insinuations about her performance enhancing. Sorry to anyone who doesn't understand the modern usage of the word dope. Um, Sorry to anyone who thinks it's modern. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Ash Barty is a a very good tennis player. Yes. um, A very worthy world number one. Yes. Um, I think that this week was another reminder of that. Um, She beat another three top ten players this week. Um, in uh, Sabalenka, Svitolina, and Pliskova on her way to the title. I think that Ash Barty is just a really fun tennis player to watch. I think that she has a lot of variety. And um, yeah, just like a really worthy number one. And I really, really love that she's come back to the tour after this break from COVID, ready to prove that to everyone, to anyone who has doubted her ranking. She has already shown you to be wrong, if that is the case. So um, I think that it's really impressive and I'm very happy she's doing so. She also just seems like more than proof. I think the proving stuff, she talked about that after Miami and she was pretty forceful about it too, about backing herself and saying, I do deserve this ranking. I deserve it the whole time. If anyone wanted to come catch me, they could have come catch me, but they Mm -hmm. did not because I am what? Sickening, Sickening. you know? And and number two through 100, you're not that kind of girl, to paraphrase uh, Miss Laquitha Wadley. But I think that... She's now in like a mode almost more of like running up the score, right? She's mm-hmm. racking up title after title like in, at this point. Uh, this is her third title of the year. She also won one of the Australian Open warm-up events that were held in Melbourne Park. And granted, these are all sort of... Miami's a big event, um, but Stuttgart's a big prestigious event. And beating three top teners uh, to get there is pretty typical for Stuttgart. Uh, loaded field. And again, on what we still think is kind of her worst surface. I mean, obviously she did win the French Open, but she's the least proven on clay in that French Open draw that she won really kind of caved in around her in a good way for her. And I think that, yeah, there's still, I think she still makes herself, I think a clear French Open favorite, maybe. I don't know if she's all the way to favorite for the French Open, because I think Simona Halep is still, for me, the person to beat on clay. But Simona did not make the final of this tournament. 
So I don't know, do you think the Ash Party is the French Open favorite now? Or how would you how would you sort of assess that uh, conversation? I wouldn't go as far as saying that she's the French Open favorite. I think that Stuttgart... Um, Stuttgart is one of my favorite tournaments. I love the drama of Stuttgart. Explain. I love the big screen. I love the Porsches like, next to the courts. I just love kind of the drama of it. I like indoor clay. I just feel like that's really fun. The clay is not very clay, necessarily. Like, I it's think fast. It's very fast. I think the French Open is a very different affair. Yes, she has won the French Open. So, I mean, technically she kind of is proven on clay, but it's not her best surface. So who's your favourite? Um, Man, I still lean Halep. I really... I just really dig Halep. I think she's really great on clay. And I still kind of live off of that Halep Wimbledon win. I just really believe in Simona Halep. And like, look, she can have a bad day and lose. And then then the field is open. And then I'm starting to look at somebody like Barty. But until Halep loses... I'm not really looking elsewhere. I'm still. Not, I'm obviously not referring. To, I hope not, maybe not obvious, but I'm not saying and thinking that Barty makes herself a little bit of a front runner for the French Open at this pretty early date in the clay season. That by any means she's a prohibitive favorite because we still have obviously Halep. We still have Iga Swiatek, most recent champion. Even if Barty is still sort of a bit of a reigning champion in her own way because she didn't defend her title because of not traveling uh, during 2020. Uh, we also still have Naomi Osaka, who's won the last two Grand Slams in the mix and who could maybe get it together. on. Cl- there, there's a bunch of, int- it's in classic WTA form. There's a bunch of interesting names going into it so far. And this, I think Ash is pulling away from the pack a little bit in terms of the ranking. I think she's a pretty clear number one, even more so with this tournament. I don't think that it's easy to say that anyone else is a more deserving person than her. She's been really good on all surfaces. It's not something we've seen uh, from players that frequently who've been number one because she's still, like, most recent champion at, like, Birmingham. And we know she's good on grass, and she's winning clay titles, and she's won a bunch of hard titles now. Um, Some indoor titles, Shenzhen, stuff like that. Um, Yeah. At most slams, I would currently say that Naomi Osaka is the favorite. Um, I would say that it's Naomi Osaka versus the field. I feel like clay is obviously a surface that Osaka is like less um, familiar with, confident on. We've seen training videos of her recently kind of enjoying practicing sliding. So in, in on the clay, I would say that Naomi Osaka is a favorite in the same way that I would say Ash Barty is a favorite, but not the favorite. It's a little bit more open, especially if Simona Halep loses in one, the early rounds. One sort of lingering thought I have on the Stuttgart final that we watched. This match was topsy-turvy in that Sablanka won the first set, I believe, 6-3 in the first. 6-2 or 6-3. And then she loses nine straight games. Barty takes the second set, 6-love, goes up 3-love in the third. And then Sablanka had a medical timeout off court and was crying and, and sort of pain during one of the changeovers. But, it, but the commentary that I was hearing on, on Tennis Channel was being like really down on Sabalenka in this way that I thought was unfair. I don't know. I, I contrast it to the commentary I heard on the next match, um, which was on that channel, was Nadal Sitsipas. And I, I understand that Sabalenka is an easy player to sort of scoff at as a tennis pundit. I'm sure I've done it myself at times too, as sort of a brainless ball basher. But like she doesn't take bad losses. She like, yeah, she plays like a sort of like high risk, high reward style sometimes that can be a little bit not not very cautious, let's say. It doesn't always feel very measured, but she's, I think, more in control than people think she is. And just the way they were framing sort of like, oh, she's not controlling her emotions. Judge the emotions on how she does after that. After she had her crying break, 
she like returned and made the third set more competitive. I think she won half the remaining games, three of the next six games after crying at three love down. And so I just I just didn't like the framing of Sabalenka as being sort of this like overly emotional basket case that I kind of felt like she was getting. Look, people can discuss Sabalenka however they want to discuss Sabalenka, but I think that her results like speak for themselves. And winning two tournaments at the end of 2020 and then starting 2021 with another win was a really, really good run. She was really great at the Australian Open. Um, the match against Serena Williams was really impressive. Like People call it brainless ball bashing all the time. I'm not sure that playing power tennis is necessarily brainless. Um, I think that it's tactical. I think that you have to be a very skilled and talented person who understands the game and has like a, like has mental strength to stick in those matches. And I think that she showed mental strength today, staying in that in the third set after struggling with the injury and losing the second set six love. So I think the brainless ball bashing thing is really unfair. I think that saying that her emotions are getting in her way is really unfair. She hasn't replicated those tournament wins like with quote unquote like slam success, but she did great at the Australian. I, I'm, she has I'm, time. I'm fine with people saying like she hasn't been herself. It hasn't been the same player at the slams. That's just fact statistically. I'm fine with that sort of like critique of her career so far, which is that she's still super, super young. But yeah, just the way it was being phrased is like, and, and she's not, she's not, it's not brainless to want to keep points short when that's to your advantage statistically, right? She's not someone who's going out there trying to cerebus tormo about and try to win on physicality and attrition, even though she's a pretty, you know, fit, strong player and all those things. But she's, she knows points are better. So always, what I always said about, you know, Lindsay Davenport or something, Lindsay Davenport just, you know, was a kind of ball bashy kind of player at times, but, or at least was a power player, but doesn't say anything that made her, you know, a stupid player. You know, like right. there was still that's you're playing the best percentage tennis for you, the method that works best for you. And Sabalenka also was hitting drop shots and can be an all core player, can come forward and she's a doubles number one at some point this year. She's capable of other things. Anyway, so there's a brief Sabalenka defense just off my chest as uh a worthy Sabalenka defense. Thank I think you. that people need to get off of Sabalenka's back. I think she's having an amazing year. And I think that, um, you know, that, that slam success will come later. But also, like, playing great against Serena Williams late in the Australian Open is not a bad slam performance. No, that was her best slam yeah. in, in years. So, so she's, she's doing great. I, I don't overall knock the sort of she's underperforming at the slams critique and conversation around her. Um, she has not lived up to her. She has not made a quarterfinal. She's been like a top eight kind of player for a while now um but she's time this year um and that that will just you can only have that conversation during the slam so make it really color how you feel about her stuttgart performance that feels silly um brief mention of the the smaller atp event this week uh in serbia the return of belgrade on the atp calendar uh, shout out to belgrade for having what i believe is only the second tournament to facilitate and offer uh vaccinations for people on site um, there's some posting about that. And they also seem to be offering like a menu of them. You could like pick which kind of vaccine you wanted, which is pretty rare, at least in the US. I don't think you can really kind of that easily vaccine shop the way they were doing in Belgrade. But uh, they had it there, which is an interesting place for it, given <laughs> Belgrade's history with the Adria tour and with the Novak Djokovic. Anyway, people know what I'm talking about there. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's a nice touch for them. And it was an interesting field. Merteo Berrettini won the tournament, ultimately winning a third set tiebreak, seven love in the end, and sort of a weird anticlimax in the final over 2021 surprise player Aslan Karatsev, who beat number one Novak Djokovic in a very long semifinal, beating the sort of owner of the tournament, essentially, which is kind of awkward playing against somebody who feels like they are the tournament. 
But Karatsev, who lost to Djokovic in the semifinals of the Australian Open, which was obviously his big breakout run, and then after that won Dubai, he, and he's had some decent results. I mean, he's won some matches, not like big runs in your Monte Carlos and your Miamis. He's still, he's still doing it. He's still got those big old calves. And uh, obviously the Berrettini <laughs> Karatsev final is a contrast in calves like you'll never see anywhere else. Yeah, what do you what do you make of Aslan Karatsev? Because he's like, he is really like solidifying his spot in London at this point. So you have to talk about him. Like he's yeah. backing this up over and over again. And the Djokovic win, obviously Djokovic number one, is his biggest win on paper that way so far. And it couldn't get bigger. The Djokovic so, in Serbia. So I started the spin um, in January 2021. And I did not expect to be speaking about Aslan Karatsev as much as I have been this year. I feel like he's one of the players I've actually written about the most. Which is nice to get someone new to write about. I'll put that out there. It is actually kind of wonderful to talk about Karatsev so much. No, I mean, it's amazing. Look, I mean, I think that everybody assumed after the Australian Open that maybe that was a little bit of a fluke and that we wouldn't be seeing him again. And then he's backed it up amazingly. I mean, I personally think that beating Djokovic this week in Belgrade might be the most impressive thing he's done this year. Um, Even though he reached that Australian Open semi, I mean, taking out the world number one at home is nuts. I mean, it's completely nuts. And like, yes, in the next round, he, I mean, he reached a tie break in the last set of the final. So he did not do bad. (laughs) It wasn't like a total letdown. I think it's really incredible. I mean, I have no idea what else is to come from Karatsev this year. I genuinely think that like, you have to look at his name now in every draw and be like, oh, who drew Aslan? Which is crazy, really exciting, like really cool to see a new name. Um, fascinated to see now how he does at the French Open. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's it's really, really impressive. I mean, I don't know what else you can say about it. And for Djokovic, you know, difficult going into the French Open. He lost to Daniel Evans in um, Monte, Carlo, in Monte yeah. Carlo, which is kind of wild, and then lost to Karatsev in Belgrade. So not... I mean, by Djokovic's standards, which, I mean, his standards being win everything, um, not a great couple of weeks, but you just never know. Well, he has right? time to turn around. He's still going into French Open, but he still has Madrid. He still has Rome. You know, those and are both he's tournaments. he's still Djokovic. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's a slam, right? You expect him to, like, um, perform really well. So, I mean, who, who knows how he'll do? But, yeah, not the best couple of weeks for Djokovic, but there's time. It was interesting. Obviously... Karatsev has had these big results before, but something about the way he beat Djokovic in Serbia, I got like another wave of messages from people being like, what is this guy's deal? Like, where did he come from? Like, how is this happening? Hold away for that. And I'm, I'm hoping again to get, well, not again, but hoping to get back on the tour soon. I feel like I talked about this with uh, someone on the show, I forget who, uh, I think Reem maybe, that part of the reason, yeah, it was Reem because she was in Dubai where he won. Part of the reason I feel like Karatsev is such a mystery is because there's, the media coverage isn't what it was, and he's not a very illuminating uh, interviewee, or not a very forthcoming person in terms of giving... He's gotten more talkative and press, he's gotten more comfortable. Uh, I saw some of his quotes out of Serbia this week that were definitely longer than the ones we were getting in Australia. He's getting more comfortable and confident in his English and stuff, which has always been pretty solid, but you have to get a comfort level in it, too, to be willing to expound on things. So I still don't know if we have like a satisfactory explanation for like why he suddenly went from being parked outside the top 200 to being like a top five caliber talent all of a sudden, mm-hmm. but it's really, it's something I'm looking forward to, to, to talking to him for the first time and seeing him in person for the first time. I saw him play briefly once in Australian Open qualifying like five years ago, but that's about it. Six years ago. Anyway, so, and he wasn't really a thing back then. 
at all. So I, I'm just looking forward to, to finding out more about him, getting more sense of his story and, and, and what wasn't working and what is working now and talk to people who play on the challengers and stuff. Yeah, I just think it's all, he's an interesting, interesting new character that's sort of a twist added to the season. Ben, I have a question for you. Go ahead. What are your feelings about Matteo Berrettini? Because I feel like when Matteo kind of emerged on the tour and started kind of knocking on the top 10, mm-hmm. people kind of saw that as being a surprise. Yeah. <laughs> and like, what are your feelings about him now and like how he's like backed up? My journey with Matteo, we want to talk about it that way. I saw him play a challenger years ago because he was playing against Ducky Lee um, in some Chinese challenger, and I watched a lot of Ducky back then, and he was amazing. He was this, like, big, strong, tall guy who just, like, blasted Ducky off the court, and I was like, whoa, this is he's good. And so then he, then he like, beat Jack Sock during Jack Sock's awful year at Wimbledon. Um, so that kind of introduced me to Berrettini more. And yeah, but and then his U.S. Open semifinal run a couple of U.S. Opens ago was a big sort of breakthrough moment for him as well. Yeah, I think he's hanging around. I think he's going to be like a solid sort of like eight through fifteen kind of player. Mm-hmm. I guess is probably is where he is now, and he's in the mix. So when, if and when, eventually the big three sort of steps back, is not the dominant force, and it comes a little bit more maybe like WTA in terms of the range of players who can show up to a slam and win it and walk away with the trophy. I think Berrettini could be in that mix. He's a good grass court player. He's just won this title on clay. I don't, I don't think this has been his best surface. He's obviously pretty good on hard court. So I think, yeah, he can be someone who's sort of in the ensemble for a while. And especially the Italian ensemble is really strong. Uh, Yannick Sinner, who made semifinals of Barcelona, I believe. Uh, at least quarters. I think semifinals of Barcelona this week. No, I'm not sure. He did well in Barcelona anyway. He's in the top 20 now. He was up to 18, so he's really moving fast, Sinner. So we'll see like how those two compare and... Not a lot of pressure on Berrettini. I think Cassandra's getting more attention lately in Italy. So I think that's maybe good for him. Um, but yeah, he's a very nice guy to talk to and everything. So he, he's a popular guy uh, on tour. And I think I'm sure the WTA players uh, appreciate him being seemingly lovely to, to Isla. So popular on both tours. Um, I know Chris Everett's a big fan of his. He spent a lot of time at the Everett Academy uh, with Isla because she's been based there for a long time even though she is Australian. Yeah, I think Bear, think, think nice things about Berrettini. I don't know. I'm not going to say he's like going to be top five soon or anything, but he could absolutely be He's in the mix, and that's going to be what matters. Right. So lo- once we get to that stage, but we're not at that stage totally yet, as we were reminded in the Barcelona final segue, uh, Rafael Nadal winning his 12th Barcelona title uh, in the longest ATP best of three finals since they started timing finals <laughs> in 1991. Uh, this match lasted three hours and 38 minutes against Stefano Tsitsipas. Uh, Tsitsipas had a, oh, Nadal had a couple of match points in the second set, and then Tsitsipas had a match point in the third set. Uh, Nadal ultimately won, I believe, 7 5 in the third. And this match was very long. I'll just put it out there. Very, very long match. This is a very long best of three match. Not the longest ever. There was that one that was like four hours, something, the crazy one against Djokovic in the Madrid semis in 09, which kind of screwed up the rest of Nadal's year, I think. But uh, it's interesting. It's sort of talking about that as a not transition moment because that would have been a big torch pass possible sort of narrative. If Sitsipas had backed up winning Monte Carlo by beating Nadal in a Barcelona final, fell one point short of doing that. Yeah, so I, 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 you can kind of, with them both having match points, you can kind of write both stories off of it if you want to. You can see, like, oh, Joe Sitspas is right there. He's really a contender. He's challenging it all on clay. Or, like, the next gen's still not quite there. Like, you can do it either way you want, I think, with this with this result. How do you how do you read that? 
So I think I think that it's a little bit of both, right? I wrote about this last week, actually. And I think that what people are expecting is a really fast change where you can pinpoint the exact moment that the like quote-unquote guard changed. From, the torch passed. Yeah, the torch passed from one generation to the next. And I think actually change happens more kind of creepingly. <laughs> um, and I think that we're kind of in that process right now. And what I don't think that means is that like Nadal and Djokovic aren't going to win any more slams. <laughs> I think that they both will. Um, I think that Nadal will is the most likely person to win the French Open and Novak Djokovic is the most likely person to win every other tournament mm-hmm. on the planet. But I think that we are starting to see that change and we're starting to see people like Tsitsipas um, pushing through. You know, we saw kind of, you know, team win the US Open. Um, we're seeing Medvedev pushing further. Um, so it's happening. It's happening right now. It's just, it's not going to be an immediate change. And that's fine. Like, change happens gradually. I I think that, but I also do think you do want a torch pass moment. I think I've said this with the women recently. I don't forget on which I talked too much. But, like, the, the U.S. Open final, the women had the Serena-Naomi final. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it was a mess. But it was actually a really clear, inf- and because it got so much attention, also, it wound up being a pretty clear inflection point torch pass moment for like, here's Serena handed the torch to this next generation person. Naomi took it and won three more slams after that, too. I do think for narrative purposes and continuity purposes, Barcelona wasn't going to be it. Although it is a very Nadal tournament, it would be like a, it'd be a statement win to beat Nadal in a Barcelona final for sure. But I do think it needs to be like in a French Open final or a Grand Slam final against one of the big three or really just Nadal and Djokovic at this point, probably. Or if it was Federer at Wimbledon against, I don't know. Sitsipas or some others or whoever else, I think that that would be a bigger moment. But Sitsipas is there, and, and he's, yeah, he, the gradual creep is there, right? He's, like, building this, like, resume for himself, right? right? He's resume building, and uh, he's not finishing off the, the, the job. He's lost a bunch of finals at this point to big three guys, but, yeah, not getting further away, that's for sure. I think what right now we're having is, you know, we're having... Um, the kind of the kind of the ground is shaking before the volcano erupts right like we're having some signs that it's coming before it happens i i think that is genuinely the stage that we're in now it's it's hard to tell exactly when the torch passing will happen but it will happen like as much as a lot of people don't want it to <laughs> it like change has yeah. to happen and like that there, there are signs of it now and, like, I think that if you are a Djokovic fan or an Adal fan or a Federer fan, like, I think that you need to kind of start getting used to the idea that they're not going to be around forever. And that's totally fine and doesn't undermine everything that they've done. And that these guys that we're talking about now are the guys that are going to be the next wave. Like, I do not think that we are going to miss out on, like, a long, interesting career from somebody like Sitsipas. <laughs> I don't think it's, like, the lost kind of generation before them. I think that they're here for the long run. So the signs are there. Um, Sitsipas yeah. can absolutely win a slam this year. Oh, for like, sure. And, and so can some other people who have been in the previous or next-gen conversation. And even people who are younger than that. Like, I mean, Yannick Sinner made a Miami final, obviously depleted field. But, like, there's people... That's what that's sort of generation skip if it's, like, a Sinner or a Musetti that's or uh, whoever else is in Alcaraz or whatever else is in this group now. Um, that would be I don't not that's forever. And I think there's still time, obviously, for those guys to to come back and win a slam. 
but yeah, I, I think, yeah, you're right. It's transitioning. It's just, this was a possible sort of, would have been a big moment. And Tsitsipas was, looks like he was taking it really hard afterwards. He knew what a kind of moment it would be to beat Nadal in Barcelona. That's just one of the places Nadal I think it won it 12 times. Nadal's this interesting combination. At least he was tested today. It was one of those things. This match was so long, you guys. Like, if you have a match this long, you kind of want it to be an upset, to be like a notable result in some ways. And you don't quite get there. You came within one point of that. But still sort of a statement match from, from Tsitsipas in that, in that way. And I want to be very clear that, like, Nadal having a little bit of rust on clay before the French Open is not in any way... Happens a lot, <laughs> uh, by Yeah, the way. It's, not, it's not a sign that he's not going to win the French Open. No. He will probably win the French Open. He is the strong favourite for the French Open. He loses clay tournaments before that slam. Like, not all the time, but, like, he loses them regularly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so it's not a sign that he's not going to win, and nor are we saying that. Um, but these guys are good. That's the point. Like, these young guys are really good. I love the positivity. Let me bring some negativity quickly <laughs> to balance that out. I feel like that's my brand lately. This match was too long. Three hours, 38 minutes for a best of three match. I don't know a best of three is a thing. And granted, it's Nadal on clay, which is always going to be the slowest possible scenario for anything. But it was a very long match. Like, we went to go get lunch, essentially, or breakfast, whatever, at the beginning of the third set. It was, like, took a while. Like, there was a wait at the place. We had to wait in line for a long time. We came back. We missed, like three games it was like two when we hadn't missed anything important at all and it's just it's very disruptive for your day when there's a th- match that takes you know nearly four hours that's that's tough that's let tough re- let the record reflect that what ben is saying that at the slams they should play three sets and that other tournaments ben feels that you should only play one set and see who wins the match i'm not saying that i'm just saying this match was too long grant i know it is an outlier it's the longest final in, in decades but it was too long the next thing and this isn't again just me being crotchety uh we were watching this match which took place on looked well, like a beautiful sunny day in barcelona watching it on your beautiful like 48 inch tv it was very hard to track the ball mm-hmm. for me because it's like bright sun shining off the court uh made it this like pretty orangey color especially in the back of the court and this like yellow ball it was very hard to track the ball from large stretches of this match and that also diminished my enjoyment of it because i couldn't see the damn ball whether we go back full to blue clay which was really um a botched thing obviously they rolled it out too fast too soon at starting at the master's level was not the way to go um although the clay is dodgy frequently especially in rome and the color was this like scapegoat that was very easy for the players to be literally surface level about what the problem was with the surface, um, with the color. Anyway, bring back help visibility. I think it's hurting clay tennis, especially no one wants to watch a match where you can't see the ball for four hours. I also don't want to want, want to watch a match where the camera is at the corner. Oh, they kept doing that. Yeah. They kept doing that. And I can, I mean, I've seen a couple of people say they really like that. Those people are wrong. <laughs> that angle from the corner of the court is horrible. I like a high camera where I can look down on the court and see everything that's happening. The corner of the court is is just wrong. Yeah. It's just wrong. I'm sorry. It's I not also, what tennis looks like. I know people like Galski really said about just low angles too. No. Make the, no, I'm not for those either. No. <laughs> I like to be able to see the whole court and not have the far top of the court top of the screen be like a sliver of the far court no that's not what i meant to there's a reason why they've developed that angle over years and years because it's the best one uh speaking of things that are the best your piece in racket magazine 16 i guess it's just it's issue 16 issue, yes. issue 16 is about the upcoming french open poster well already out french open poster but the upcoming french open and its poster entitled uh this poster is gay can you talk about the sexual orientation of a poster how you ascertain such a thing and uh, your piece. Just want to sum it up for people. Sometimes you just... Or tease look, it for people, not sum it up, but tease it. 
I will tease it. I will tease um, the piece. Um, sometimes you just look at a piece of art and you inherently see yourself in that piece of art. Mm. Um, that was my immediate reaction to the um, Roland Garros poster. A very um, homosexual illustration if you will. Um, no, the, the poster was pitched as being a celebration of the new night session um, at Roland Garros, which is something that should be celebrated. I am all for a night session at Slam. Um, but the poster has... Especially one that's six hours ahead of this time zone, yes. Yes, very, very down for that. Um, this poster has a lot of elements um, that I believe um, are gay. If you read Racket, you can um, find my step-by-step explanation of, of why that is the case. What I did not put in the piece was that I think that Julia Gerges um, is in this poster. Um, I okay. think that she there is a female player um, there in the poster. I think she looks very similar to Julia Gerges. And I just think that that's a... Um, a great choice um, if you are trying to design a poster for a gay man. I feel like she feels like a good kind of like gay tennis fan WTA pick. Um, I feel like... (laughs) Why why Gerg is more than any other WTA player? Well, I mean, a lot of WTA players would be good um, picks for gay fans. I think that Gerges is just one of them. Um, um, The fact that she's surprising also helps. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I'm just, like, really glad to see Roland Garros celebrating um, tennis's gay fans. There are many of us. Um, We exist. Um, We will continue to exist and recruit more. Um, So... (laughs) Um, what I'm saying is that um, it's Roland Garros and it's here to recruit you and uh, I hope that you will pick up issue 16 of Racket. And that was The Gay Agenda by Andrew Eccles. Uh, you said We Exist repeatedly, so I'll make the We Exist song by uh, Arcade Fire. Just think it's sort of about the gays. It's our outro for this episode. Speaking of endings to things, the Oscars we just watched. Quick sidebar on this topic, which Courtney and I have talked, talked about on the a Patreon show we did. I'm not sure if that section is up. I've had some technical difficulties with uploading the whole four-hour recording that we did, breaking it into pieces. Um, but we talked about our predictions and stuff. And the Oscars, I don't think results-wise, were that crazy. There was one notable big upset in the Best Actor category that was a real upset based on what people thought would happen with Anthony Hopkins beating Chadwick Boseman uh, in that category. Chadwick Boseman, uh, a posthumous, uh, overwhelming favorite to win this award after passing away last year but the oscars really uh i think shook us by the way they were shaken up and obviously it was a very lo- different looking award from the jump it was held in a former train station in los angeles instead of the normal sort of theater um i thought visually it was very cool looking um it was also interesting seeing it with like big windows you could tell it was happening during the day where usually the oscars are a very closed indoor nighttime kind of event a Stuttgart, if you will, Stuttgart WTA, not the Stuttgart ATP, but it's a little more Stuttgart ATP, a little grassier. And it started off, the first award was Best Original Screenplay, which is usually like in the back half. It's one of the sort of like late in the show and you're really starting to figure out what is having momentum. But it was first, and that was like, okay. And then they did Best Director really early in like maybe the first seven awards, maybe around then was Best mm-hmm. Director, which is very early for what a lot of people think is the second biggest award of the night. And then most, I think, controversially, um, Best Picture 
was not the last word as it has been, I believe, in every Oscars ever, I, I want to say, at least in my lifetime that I've ever seen, for sure. And I think probably, I'm guessing ever. No, I didn't see anyone saying, oh, they've done this before. I think it's the first uh, that they shook it up this year. That was the there was the third to last uh, award. Basically, they left the two main acting awards for afterwards. Um, Nomadland won Best Director for Chloe Zhao and Best Picture, um, also Chloe Zhao and others. Um, and then Best Actress came on, which was Frances McDormand, who was up on stage very, very briefly. And then they finished with Best Actor, which I think we were thinking was like, maybe they save that for last because they thought it would be Chadwick Boseman's moment after having been, you know, to sort of win in absentia and memoriam. Um, but instead it was... Uh, Anthony Hopkins, who won, who was not there also, um, for less permanent reasons than why Chadwick Boseman wasn't there. He just didn't want to come. And the show ended with, you know, the presenter saying the Academy accepts this award on Anthony Hopkins' behalf. Good night, everybody. And it was a weird thing. And it felt anticlimactic, even just because usually Best Picture is still the premier award, no matter who's dead or not, honestly. Mm -hmm. And it, it just sort of threw off the whole rhythm of the thing. And I think it kind of like, I'm sure you have more to say about this, but I feel like it sort of muddles the narrative away from what should have been the very clear narrative of the night in terms of news terms. Chloe Zhao becomes the only second ever woman to win Best Director in all these years, first ever woman of color to win, and this very female-led movie wins Best Picture. Exactly. I think that, so, it's difficult, right? Because we're coming off the kind of, um, the high of having just finished the ceremony. <laughs> um, but so we're really seeing the trees for the forest right now. We really are seeing the trees right now, but I want to be very level-headed about this. Look, the awards actually mostly went to the right people, almost universally went to the right people. Like, I can't argue with basically any of the winners of the main categories. I actually also tweeted before the ceremony that my vote for best actor would have been Anthony Hopkins, so I'm not upset by that win. I actually think that was the right person to win. And you, I will say, are a rare person who's seen The Father. Most people have not seen that movie. I have seen The Father. I am both an Anthony Hopkins stan and an Olivia Colman completist. Um, so I had seen The Father in preparation. Um, and he was amazing in it and I think is the right winner for best actor. I think that putting the award at the end of the ceremony and quite clearly making the guess that you were going to be finishing the ceremony with a big tribute to Chadwick Boseman was a terrible mistake, especially because they really rushed through the in memoriam this year. It was like very, very, I mean, they had a lot I of I felt like it was on cut. fast forward. It yeah. was on fast forward. They could have given that a bigger moment. I thought that was a, a real error. And it's a shame because the ceremony was actually, I thought the ceremony was really good. I loved the start with um, Regina King doing a kind of walkthrough as all of the presenters' names were on, on the screen. It was generally a very good ceremony, but that mishap of not putting Best Film and Best Director at the end was terrible, especially in a year when a woman was winning Best Director because it actually felt like they really undercut Chloe Zhao's win. And Chloe Zhao really could have been the centre of this ceremony, and rightfully so, because Nomadland was really, really great. So I think that's a real shame, but I think history will remember the winners, um, and I hope that everybody at home will remember and watch the winners as well as the nominees. It's a really, really good lineup. Yuzhen Yun is incredible. Daniel Kaluuya in Judas and the Black We watched Messiah. that yesterday. That's so good. We watched that together. He's really good in that. It was wonderful. There was a lot of good He's also a damn lead actor, by the way, but whatever. 
he was definitely the lead actor. Well, well, him and Lakeith were, were both, both leads. Were both leads, but they were both nominated as supporting. Not their choice, by the way. Oh, so stupid. Um, but uh, anyway, Daniel Kaluuya, a very good winner. Um, Promising Young Woman, um, a wonderful winner for original screenplay. Yeah. I had wanted that to win for Best Actress as well, but Frances McDormand is great. Yeah, a really, a really good Oscars. I just wish they hadn't like whiffed the ending it felt very tennis to have all the debate about the order of play <laughs> it really was and it was an unforced error that's what it was at the end of the day it was like a real just like a mistake for no good reason but here we are it happened much love to everyone who really wanted to see chadwick has have his moment i don't think chadwick boseman needs to be defined by whether or not he won an oscar Everyone is going to remember Chadwick Boseman. He is Black Panther. Yeah. You know, he's a fantastic actor. He was a fantastic actor whether or not he won the Oscar. And it's a shame that they they structured it in such a way that it made it feel like they were undercutting him in the end. Yeah, it's just one of those things where, like, I think you could have done the normal order. I mean, maybe flip because I think it, I don't know if it's always consistent that actor goes before actress. I feel like it usually does in the ceremony but you could have had actor go second and then have actor win and then have a big moment for whoever won actor or potentially Chabot and then a commercial break and then best picture you could have done that if you really for some reason wanted best picture to be before actor and actress you should have done actress last because actress was the one that was theoretically the closest race right yeah. Bozeman was quote unquote like a lock so no, he didn't win, but actress was always up for grabs. Nobody knew who was going to win that win that award. So you could have just kept the tension going for that one at the end instead, and that would maybe have been more appropriate. But like ultimately, look, director picture should have been last. Yeah, <laughs> I think usually it goes director then actor actress picture, which I think is fine. Yeah, that works. Yeah. That's totally fine. Yeah. yeah, it just yeah, director was like before like the technical sound awards and before like animated short and stuff. It was way too early. Yeah. It doesn't make, it doesn't make any sense. And by the way, soul shouldn't have won for best animated feature, but I can rant about that somewhere else. <laughs> okay. <laughs> to be continued, I guess. Uh, Andrew, thank you very much for being on here, for having me in Brooklyn for this lovely weekend uh, for, of tennis and movies and fun and podcasting now filming recording on location. So maybe sound a little bit different than usual, but hopefully sounds pretty good. And one more thought from you. I was just going to say, Ben, thank you for being here. I'm so glad that we both got fully vaccinated. Yes. Everybody at home, if you can, get your vaccination. I'm a Johnson & Johnson boy. Um, very proud of my Johnson & Johnson crew. Um, and it really makes a big difference for being able to see friends in your life again. So it's lovely to see it you, It is ben. really nice, yes. So yes, be responsible up until then as much as you can. And then like enjoy your friends because then it's safe. And that's the point of the vaccine is it makes... You safe. And yes, maybe there's a marginal, marginal chance of whatever, but you can't live your life like that. Just be free. And once you, but once you be safe. So go to Belgrade or wherever else are giving out vaccines now, get your vaccine, live your life, and we'll see you next time. Uh, brief thanks to our backers and then Arcade Fire. Bye, guys. Bye. Oh, and go subscribe to The Spin on Substack. We'll put a link in the bio, in the description of the show. So thank you again to everyone who has supported NCR on our Patreon page, which you can find at patreon.com slash no challenges remaining. Courtney and I did a long mailbag episode, which we are putting up piece by piece. The rest of it should be up soon. It was four hours total. We have the first part up there already. And a bunch of other exclusive content for folks as well, if they want to check that out, that is available only on the Patreon. Various different past episodes of audio and some video stuff as well. 
So we want to thank all of our backers once again, especially the ones who are new since our last episode, who are Landon Wallace, Donna Fullerton, and Coder Farha. And then also want to thank Timothy Liu, who bumped up his pledge to now be in the Slam Champ backer category, which we thank on every episode. And those names are Susanna W., Sean Mulroy, Mary Carrillo, Leah Williams, Liz Kinnell, Jonathan Weinbaum, Jean Simeon, James Hindle, Audrey Wellens, Antonio Maycumber, Anna Valinder, and Timothy Liu. And our GOAT backers, Mike, Nicole Copeland, Chris Bishop, Pam Shriver, and J.O.D. Here's Arcade Fire. Bye, guys. <laughs>